Hello, I'm Anthony Scaramucci, and this is Open Book, where I talk with some of the brightest minds out there about everything surrounding the written word, from authors and historians to figures in entertainment, neuroscientists, political activists, and of course, Wall Street. Sorry, I can't resist. Before we get into today's episode, if you haven't already, please hit follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. We all love a review, even the bad ones. I want to hear the parts you're enjoying or how we can do better. You know I can roll with the punches, so let me know. Anyways, let's get to it. So today on An Open Book, we're speaking with David Rubenstein, co-founder and co-chairman of the Carlisle Group. Carlisle was established in 1987. It manages over $325 billion from 26 offices around the world and is one of the largest and most successful private investment firms ever. David's latest book, How to Invest Masters on the Craft, distills everything he's learned about the art of investing over 35 years, from hedge funds and real estate, cryptocurrency investing, ESG, and more. Welcome, David. It's great to have you here. I want to start immediately with your new book, uh, How to Invest Masters on the Craft. Your other books, every which one of them that I have read are absolutely fantastic. I know this book is going to go in that same realm. I'd like you to discuss it. Why did you decide now was the time to share this wisdom on investing after writing the book on leadership in America, et cetera? Well, uh, as you know, I've been in the investing world for about 35 years. Uh, While I was not the principal investor at Carlisle, other people did it. I was on all the investment committees of relevance. And so I picked up a fair bit. And then I've been involved in the nonprofit investment world in recent years by being on investment committees. And I've known a lot of the very most famous investors in the country from other philanthropic or other investment things. So I just thought it'd be an interesting thing to do to interview a number of them and take their lessons and put them together. The book is designed for people that might want to be investors, people who are doing some investing now, but aren't great investors, and people who are really talented investors but want to learn more about the, the great investors. Well, you, you, chronicle, you chronicle many investors. Let's go to Warren Buffett. He made his first stock purchase at age 11. Jim Simons was focused on math, not investing. I believe you also had uh, Paula in the book, Paula Valent. Her career was initially in art. So tell me, is is investing tied to creativity? Is it is there a form of artistry to investing? What did you learn in terms of putting the book together? Well, I guess you could say it's a bit of artistry, but basically the common characteristics that I have observed are that the great investors are people that have a facility for numbers. They're probably reasonably good in math. They uh, try to do some other things in, in early in life. Very few of them, like Warren Buffett, were investing at the age of 11 or so. That's rare. Uh, They tend to come from, uh, I would say, middle-class families, not the poorest families and not the wealthiest families. They tend to be willing to make the decisions themselves. They don't like to delegate. They tend to be willing to go against conventional wisdom. That's the most important characteristic, is to go against what the conventional wisdom tells you you should do. And those people that have gone against conventional wisdom have tended to make really good decisions and become famous investors. Give me one example of going against conventional wisdom where you say, wow, that really worked out for the man or woman. Well, uh, one of the most famous trades made in the last century, in the latter part of the last century, was when George Soros broke the Bank of England, as we say, and he got the pound to be devalued. That was really based on advice 
that he had from one of his uh, people running his fund, Stan Druckenmiller. And at the time, people didn't think that Bank of England was going to devalue the pound. And therefore, nobody else was really uh, betting that. And as a result, he was able to get a relatively inexpensive bet against the pound. And it turned out to make a staggering amount of money at the time. A billion dollars is what they made in profit. John Paulson, who you know, um, John Paulson was a person who bet enormous amount of money that the uh, subprime credit market would default essentially. And he made $20 billion profit on that, maybe the most profitable single trade in Wall Street history, but nobody else was really making that bet. Let's go to Stan for a second. You interview Stan for the book. Uh, Stan Druckenmiller, someone you and I both know very well. Uh, he was worried about that trade, wasn't he, David? Well, on on uh, on the, the pound trade? Yes. Well, when he, it was his idea. And then Soros heard about it. He was kind of running the quantum fund for Soros. And Soros would dabble from time to time. And he would say, well, geez, if it's such a good idea, let's put more and more money into it. Soros's major investment premise over the years was, if you have a really good idea, put everything you have into it, because you don't have really great ideas that often. And so when Soros heard about the idea, they up increased the amount of money they, they had put into it. The... Uh uh, th- that was uh, 30 years ago, if I remember correctly. Right. So we're talking, uh, see, it would be several billion dollars of today's dollars. Does persistence pay off against conventional wisdom? There's also people that have gone against the tide and have gotten hurt, David. Yes. Well, you, you can always go against conventional wisdom, and sometimes you're going to be wrong. And sometimes the conventional wisdom is right. So you have to know when the conventional wisdom is going to be right and when it's going to be wrong. Uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, the famous Harvard economist, once said that the conventional wisdom in Washington is always wrong. It may be right, but the conventional wisdom in the markets is not always wrong, and sometimes the conventional wisdom is right. And therefore, when you go against the conventional wisdom, uh, you can can make a lot of money if you happen to be right. A good example is uh, people that bet on Amazon and and Google. Uh, One of the guys in the book... um, um, Mike Moritz, who was the head of Sequoia, they bet on Google and they bet on Amazon and turned out to be a pretty good bet. And then, you know, at the time, many people didn't think those companies were going to get very far. I'm looking at today's conventional wisdom, uh, which is that the cryptocurrency markets are a bunch of bunk, uh, Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies. Uh, they've had a precipitous fall over the last year. Uh, what are your thoughts there about uh, conventional wisdom and cryptocurrency? Conventional wisdom is often made up of people by people who are older, and so they're not usually the ones that spot the n- newest trends. Newest trends don't usually come from 70-year-olds. They usually come from people in their 20s. And so it's interesting how many people in their 20s seem to think that crypto has some purpose to it and some value other than just speculation. And I think they're probably right. And this is the reason. Right now, many people feel, the younger people, that the the current generation, my generation and your generation, have helped to devalue the dollar. And as a result, it's not worth what it once was. So maybe a currency that isn't so dependent on the follies of government might be better. Uh, Crypto also is something you you can trade without anybody knowing that you have traded and you can own it without people knowing you own it. And take the Russian oligarchs, for example. Many of them probably wish they owned cryptocurrencies because their their assets have been confiscated in many cases by the Western governments. While many Chinese people probably saying, wait a second, suppose China invades Taiwan, uh, what will be their repercussions against Chinese oligarchs if there are such a uh, group of people? Well, maybe their assets in the U.S. might be frozen. Well, one of the ways to prevent that is to have assets that nobody knows you have, which would be cryptocurrencies. So I, I don't think crypto is 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 worthless. 
I, I have not bought cryptocurrencies myself. I have invested in companies that service the industry. And for this book, I interviewed Mike Novogratz, who you may know is a you know big proselytizer for crypto. He has uh, he's one of the biggest owners, I think, of Bitcoin. It's gone down a bit from where he uh, had it at the peak, but it's way above what it, what he paid for it. Yeah, well, I want to go there because you you interviewed uh, Larry Fink, John Paulson, who's a crypto skeptic. Obviously, Mike is a crypto bull. Uh, Larry Fink um, told me at the Al Arion Hotel in the Four Seasons in Abu Dhabi that he didn't like Bitcoin. But if his clients wanted Bitcoin, he would begin the process of setting up products related to it. Where do you think those three brilliant people are. They're all very different people, but they have very different opinions on cryptocurrency. Help us synthesize where you think they are. Well, Larry uh, runs the biggest money management company in the world, and and he got that way in part by listening to what clients want. And so if clients want to trade cryptocurrencies, I think he might do what Jamie Dimon has done, which is to say, I'm not sure this is such a great thing. In fact, it may be going to zero, but I'm willing to provide an option to our clients. So if they want to trade in it without our telling them they should, that option is available. So I, I, in John Paulson's case, John is running a family office now, his own money, and he doesn't see any value to crypto, and he's very vehement about it. But you know, lots of times, people who make great decisions, as he did on the on the credit default swaps and uh, and subprime mortgages, sometimes they make mistakes. So I don't know what the right answer is going to be, but I do think it's not going away anytime soon. And you know, you probably know this better than I, but it seems to me a lot of people who are conservative, libertarian people, and younger tend to think this is a good thing. And it's kind of something they've lobbied Congress uh, to not regulate unduly. And as a result, I think Congress has listened and Congress is not pushing to the SEC or the, or the CFTC to do much regulating more than they're already doing. One of the things that you talk about in the book is regrets. I believe that you interviewed Ray Dalio, asked him about his regrets. You talked about Ron Barron and uh, the challenges that he had getting his business started. Tell us about how great investors handle their bad decisions, because none of us are perfect. And especially if you think about it from a baseball perspective, you don't have to be perfect to be a great investor. You know, I, I you know, talk about in the book some of my regrets, uh, you know, not putting money in Facebook when Mark Zuckerberg was at Harvard and I knew about it. Or, or basically selling the shares in Amazon right after it went public because I didn't really think it would get very far. I, I kind of harbor my regrets for about 20 to 30 years, whereas really great investors, they go on to the next thing and they don't even think back on it. I know some investors that you know, made mistakes and they just get out of it and they go on to the next thing and they don't think about it much. I just don't have that ability. Well, you know, Buffett talks about his regrets. You know, Buffett had the, uh, the Disney trade on in the 60s. Uh, basically said, if I had just held the Disney uh, stock through the ups and downs, you think we make mistakes sometimes? I sold my Microsoft as an example. I bought it in 1990. And during the bomber years when it was flatlining, I sold my Microsoft. I paid the taxes on my game. It would have been way better for me to have just ridden through that, uh, given how well Microsoft has done in the last 10 years. Uh, that's one of my regrets. I'm just wondering, do, do we hold our investments long enough, Dave? Well, Warren Buffett has made a large part of his fortune by not selling because he avoids transaction costs and taxes. And Ron Barron, who is in the book, has the same philosophy. Get good companies, get companies where the CEOs own a fair amount of stock and stay with them through thick and thin unless you've made a gigantic mistake and you realize that they were not as good as you thought. But generally, stay with companies. Warren Buffett famously says he doesn't sell things. Now, he does sell things from time to time, but generally, he's not a person who likes to sell. So I would say that's a good way to kind of uh, make money, which is to 
know what you're doing, buy it and hold on to it because you avoid all the transaction costs and of course you avoid taxes. Yeah, no, I just wonder. I, I, I think when I think about my mistakes, sir, I have, I have sold too early many high quality companies, and it could have been from boredom or impetuosity, which I, I, I regret. I, I want to ask you about the way you broke up the book. You took it into three different sections. One was mainstream investing, one was alternative investing, and then cutting edge investments. Um, did you notice similarities, similar characteristics and principles across all three, or how do those three different investment genres differ from each other? Well, traditional is really stocks and bonds and traditional real estate and things like that. And that's what people have been investing in for hundreds of years. It's fairly well known as the core of a basic investment portfolio. In the 1970s or so, venture capital came along, hedge funds came along, private equity came along. And these these uh, categories now called alternative are not really so alternative to mainstream because anybody that's got a portfolio today of any consequence will have these so-called alternative assets in that portfolio. And they would also include things like growth capital, um, opportunistic real estate, and so forth. I had another category, which I came, gave the name to of cutting edge. These are things which people are doing to get high returns as they are with alternatives, but they're newer. So ESG, for example, or SPACs, which may uh, you know, not be that attractive today, or infrastructure investing, uh, or things like, uh, things like that, which are, are much newer, haven't yet proven over 20, 30, 40 years to be as valuable and as good an investment as, say, the alternatives are. But no doubt, they probably will over a period of time. And crypto is in that category as well. Crypto is something that people either love or hate. Very few, rarely do people say, yeah, I'm not sure about crypto. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's definitely definitely a binary response uh, to cryptocurrency investing. Uh, Throughout the whole conversations that you've had, the 35 years of investing, uh, distill it for me. What's the best piece of investment advice you've ever received? And what is the investment advice that you would be giving to your grandchildren? Well, my grandchildren are two and four, so I'm not sure they're going to remember my advice. But look, the most important investment advice that anybody can get, I think, is diversify, don't put all your eggs in one basket, and know what you're, you're investing in. In other words, don't just listen to a stock tip somebody might have given you. Read something and learn about it. Make sure you know what you're, you're getting into. Many people just don't read uh, enough about it, or they'll just rely on some information that's not very reliable. Also, one of the most important mistakes to avoid and one of the most important lessons to learn is that when the markets go up, that's not a great time to, to get in. And when the markets are go down, that's not a great time to get out. People who really make money generally do the opposite. You get into the markets when they're depressed and there's blood in the streets, and you get out of the markets when they're, they're at high valuations they are not sustainable. That is uh, the best advice you can give anybody. All right. Well, I want to I want to shift I want to shift gears for a second because uh, I, I find your worldview fascinating. And what I did was prior to this interview, I sent out to our fan base, um, our uh, followers, uh, what questions would they have for you? And what was interesting about it is everybody wants you, David, to predict the future. Everybody sees you as a as a seer. It's impossible to predict the future, but I'm going to ask you some trying hypotheticals. Okay. When I was at the White House, I got asked three or four hypotheticals at the in the Brady press room, and I quickly decided not to answer those. But this is fun and games, and so I'm going to ask you a few. 
Okay. Okay. Looking at the U.S. economy, David, should we be worried about low interest rates and the rise of debt we've been incurring over the last three decades? And just let's go back to the George Bush administration. We went from George Washington to George Bush, $7 trillion. And now we've gone from Barack Obama to Joe Biden. And I think we racked up, you tell me, 22 to 23 trillion. Should we be worried about this? I think we should. Um, I think historically, when you have too much debt, it's not good, either your personal investments or government investments. But for recent uh, history, we've kept interest rates so low that the U.S. government can sustain, really, I think it's about $28 trillion of debt when you count the internal and external debt. And now that interest rates are going up, the government debt is going to be much more expensive. So I think in the end, it's not going to be a happy ending for people. But I've been saying that for a decade or more, and I've been wrong because we've been able to sustain the debt and the markets have not been that that upset with the large amount of federal debt. At some point, I think we will pay that price though. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so I'm worried about it as well. And I also think these interest rate rising, you know, you get a 100 basis point interest rate rise on that kind of debt, it starts to absorb a very big part of the tax revenue. So uh, is there a scenario where you could envision where the United States could go into deficit reduction? Or do you think we're caught now in this spiral where we'll always have deficits and therefore levels of devaluation? Um, there's only a couple ways you can deal with the debt we have, which is staggering when you think about it. And now the level of debt we have is, um, you know, more than 100% of GDP. There are only a few countries that have debt that's more than 100% of GDP. A good example of one is Italy, which is not probably a role model for us. I would say that there are five ways out of this problem. One, you increase taxes. Nobody likes that. Two, you cut spending. Nobody likes that. Three, you default on the debt. Nobody likes that. Four, you inflate your way out of it, um, which is uh, probably what we're going to be doing at some point. Or five, you devalue the currency, uh, basically. And um, we're in the combination of uh, eventually we're going to devalue the currency, but we're also going to inflate our way out of it. So not a good solution. The best solution would, of course, be to cut spending in some way and and to uh, you know, do that, you got to cut benefits and somehow, as you know, 90 percent or so of the federal budget is entitlements, defense spending and um, and interest. And there's very little left. It's discretionary at this point. So it's hard to cut. You know, one of the one of the things that you've done an amazing job, in my opinion, is staying out of the political strife and the political fray, despite living in Washington and despite working for a Democratic president in the early part of your career. Um, is that something we should be doing, David, as business people? Should we just stay out of politics uh, and let the politicians handle it? Or do you think that businesses now, because politics is such a big part of our life and we're basically in the high tax states, minority partners in our own lives, that we should be involved in politics? What's your thoughts there? I am different than the others. I'm not against business people or business leaders getting involved in government and politics and lobbying one way or the other, but I, I just don't feel comfortable giving large sums of money to politicians and so forth. So I don't give money to any politician for anything. And uh, that takes me out of the game of being influential with some politicians, but I try to take my money and do philanthropic things with it. And maybe it has some impact, maybe not. 
But no, I'm not. I just stay out of politics. But I, I'm not saying that that's I, that's ideal for everybody. There are some really good public-minded citizens, CEOs, that give money to politicians, and they obviously they want to have politicians listen to them. I don't think that's terrible. But you have to admit that the level of money in politics today is uh, so staggering that if we were a banana republic, these campaign contributions would be called bribery. I mean, when you get a million or two million or three million dollars from one individual donor, you know, I won't call it bribery, but I would say it's certainly uh, not the ideal situation. So you've lived in Washington, you've worked in politics, you've worked around political leaders. Do you think that the current tribalism and identity politics that we're struggling with in the society now, can that fever be broken? Or do you think it gets worse over the as the years progress, David? Or what would have to happen to break that fever? The only way it's going to be broken is if you were to eliminate through some kind of constitutional amendment, which is unlikely, politics uh, being so dependent on money. Because money is the mother's milk of, of politics, that is said, as it is said. As you probably know from your, your experience in Washington dealing with politicians, they raise money incessantly. Members of Congress on the House side say, well, they spend 40% of their time calling people for money. Why do they need so much money? Well, one, if you have more money, you tend to, tend to win. Two, if you have more money, you have money to give away to other politicians who maybe curry favor and for seniority kind of positions or committee chairmanships. Three, you also tend to scare people away from running with you. If you have a big bank account, people may not run against you. And fourth, you can keep the money. Uh, the law now is that you can keep the money that's that not expended. You can't use it for personal purposes. But for example, if let's suppose you uh, you you want to uh, hire your daughter to be your campaign manager, you can give her a salary. Um, if you want to hire one of your uh, rent one of your own buildings for your campaign headquarters, you can use that money. So it's really not all that impersonal. You can really do a lot of personal things with the money that's left over. So it's it's a, not a great situation, honestly. And as you know, politicians uh, are love the jobs they have. Then the jobs don't pay very much, but they love them. And my experience is that when members of Congress lose an election or they retire, they're never so happy as when they're out of office. But they're afraid that they're going to be thrown out of office somehow involuntarily. And very often they, they do anything to stay, stay in office, even though the compensation is really embarrassingly low. Okay, listen, I, uh, I I love your insight on all this stuff. I, I should have listened to you 10 or 15 years ago. For, I think I got myself too deep into the uh, political network. Well, there's always salvation. And uh, are you still really actively involved now in, uh, in, in any kind of politics? Not not really. I mean, I, I've given to some of my personal favorites, uh, but I don't organize or raise money like I used to, say, 10 or 15 years ago. I think that uh, that ship has passed for me. I'm trying to just focus on our uh, okay. our core business. But remember, like you, having come from humble means, when I got my job at Goldman in the private banking area, I didn't really have many contacts. And I, since I had never been a member of a country club and my dad was an hourly worker, uh, one of the ways to meet influential people was through politics. So for myself, at 25, the first check that I wrote actually was to Rudolph Giuliani. He was running for mayor in 1989. Uh, he lost that election to David Dinkins, uh, which was actually, believe it or not, quite helpful to me because I was able to build a relationship with the soon-to-be mayor of New York. And when he won in 93, I was at Goldman Sachs, and uh, that was actually very good for me. And, uh, not only was I able to park anywhere I wanted in New York City, David, but he introduced me to a lot of uh, wealthy and influential people, which helped me build my career. So I, I'd always had a tie to politics, but I went over the line, which was a mistake by me, which you know I should have just stayed on the line of entrepreneurship intersecting wow. with politics. You've done okay, so I wouldn't- That's uh, nice. No, no, I'm not, I'm not casting it. 
educating myself. I'm just being observant. Um, two two last questions, okay. sir. Uh, when you think about where we are right now, current landscape, economy, global economy, politics, pandemics, is there a slam dunk out there? You know, a place where you would absolutely put your money and you'd say, okay, that's going to be a slam dunk given everything that's going on in our society. Or are there too many unknowns to I make would that? Say it depends on your, what the rate of return is that you're, you're looking for. But I'd say if you can get in the best venture funds, that the, the most highly uh, experienced venture funds, that's probably a pretty good thing because they tend to be doing extremely well. And even though they're down a little bit now, probably come back. They're really talented and the best firm funds in, in, in Silicon Valley. I'd say giving your money to pretty good money managers that know what they're doing and have very conservative outlooks can probably be helpful in not losing things. I tell people the most important thing, if you have a lot of money, is to not lose it. And so right. the best way not to lose it is to be very conservative. You know, a lot of people make fortunes building widgets or building this or that. And they think they're geniuses in investments, but they realize they're not. And so don't try to make a great fortune in the investing world. Just get solid returns every year and it compounds quite nicely. Okay, fair enough. Anything to avoid? You would say, okay, you got to stay away from this. This is toxic. Well, at the moment, I think if you don't know what you're doing in, in crypto, you should be very careful about putting too much of your money in because it can be very volatile, in, in my view. But, you know, avoid crypto uh, if you're not experienced or thinking about it. Or don't put and, too much uh, money into this, it. Yeah, I would say not put too much money into it, but I would also say uh, you have to have a long time horizon given the volatility of the asset. Okay, my last my last okay. question is broken up into three categories, sir. All right. Okay. The best business book you've ever read. You can't you can't say one of your own, although that's going to be one of the best probably in 2022. The best business book you've ever read. There, uh, well, there, there's a book called Snowball that was written about about Warren Buffett. I think was really really good. And then there was a book written many years ago about somewhat similar to my current book uh, called Money Masters by John Train, which was about the leading money managers of those that era. I think the 1960s and 70s or so. Those are two really good business books. He also wrote a successor to Money Masters specifically about Warren Buffett in 1988, which was actually an also an amazing book. Uh, okay, those are good ones. Uh, one history book, sir. You're a, histor- you're a historian. You're, you're a history buff. Favorite history book? I would say a really good book is on, on Charles Lindbergh by Scott Berg. He won the Pulitzer Prize, and it's an incredible story about uh, Lindbergh's life. And then after it was won the Pulitzer Prize, it turned out that the author found out by happenstance that Lindbergh had fathered seven children out of his marriage with two different German women who were sisters and didn't even know that they were each having separate affairs with Charles Lindbergh. And the biographer didn't, didn't know this until after the book came out. An incredible book. Uh, yeah, I read that book, M. Scott Berg. It was a great biography. Lindbergh obviously was an interesting person because of his whole America first. He was one of the true first America firsters, if you will. Right. He used to uh, give Franklin Roosevelt a hard time. And we've got remnants of that happening today. Okay, last last part of the last question. Your favorite fiction, What's your favorite fiction book, David? Um, I guess uh, I have a home in Nantucket. So I guess I would say Moby Dick. Okay. That's a great one. Obviously, the uh, that is a you know there's everything is in that book. Uh, uh, Kill a Mockingbird um, is also a great uh, work of fiction, I think, as well. No, I love I love those two. I also I'll always recommend to people uh, Herman Wolk's two books, The Winds of War and War and Remembrance. I don't know if you remember oh, those. Of course, but they, they were, were great books, and he wrote them when he was relatively he's older than I am now. 
Yeah, he, he, he did a great job in those books. If you've read War and Peace, they have a little bit of a taste of those, of those books are in there. All right, well, as always, it's uh, fantastic. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Uh, it's a masterclass on investing. It's a brilliant book sharing not only David's hard-earned wisdom and insights, but also the insights of some very great investors, including Larry Fink, uh, Mary Callahan Erdos, John Paulson, Mike Novogratz, Ray Dalio, and more. Uh, whether you're brand new to investing or a seasoned investment professional, uh, several hundred years of experience in that one tome. It's a great read, and I certainly recommend it to everybody. So I interviewed one of the greatest investors of all time. The guy's name is David Rubenstein, and he's a dear friend. And he asked me a question that I want to ask you, okay? Uh, when did you think I was going to go into investing? Didn't you want me to be a lawyer, Ma? Uh, did I want you to be a lawyer? No, I want my children to be what they want to be. Because what you, if, you pick your, if you pick what you want to be, then you're usually successful at it. If you pick my son, David, picked um, electrical and engineer. He did Grumman's two years. He hated it. And then he became an investor and he did very well. Right. That's true. So I feel as though that you have to pick what you want. Otherwise, you're not successful at it. Right. Okay. So what what's the best piece of investment advice, Ma? Like who you are. You have to like yourself so that you can climb the right way. You have to look I in see. the mirror and tell yourself you're handsome or beautiful. Eventually, you believe that and you you get tough from it. So really, you know? the, the best investment advice is to invest in yourself, right? To believe in yourself right. and to... Believe in yourself. You know, when you're making mistakes, make a are, correction and, and, and make an and adaptation. And what you are. And 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 um and I think that you know who you are, and that's why you're so successful. And you don't dip- differentiate the people if they have it or they don't. And you will help someone in the family. I can't say the name. Survive life right now from a from a bad malpractice mm-hmm. doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I know. I'm working on that. So, all right, but let me ask you, people don't realize this. You didn't go to college, but you read a lot of books. So what what, what are some of your favorite books? What what about like the Catherine Graham book? You remember the book about Catherine Graham? Yeah, was, uh, I, I read the Washington Post because she was her the, husband the, was bipolar. Right. He died and she took over the, the business and she became very successful because she learned from him being bipolar and she accepted him for what he was. Mm-hmm. And so when he died, she learned all his techniques for people that are bipolar usually very smart. Yeah. And he, Philip Graham, he committed suicide in the basement of their house and she wrote about it very honestly, right? right? So Catherine Graham's memoir is one of your favorite books. What are some of your other favorite books, Ma? Uh, ben Go. I think that Ben Go was a fabulous artist. And I had a table book of him and I read the book from cover to cover. And he was also bipolar and he did a a painting of flowers, which were beautiful colors. And I think that's how we got some of the colors that he produced in this painting. And he did another painting of wild horses. And I used to horseback ride when I was young and I loved the painting of the wild horses. And I found him very, very interesting, even though he cut his ear off when he was doing his last painting. All right. What else? Any other books, Ma? 
Um, well, I like makeup, so there's a book that's called Simply Oils, and it tells you the kind of oils that are good for your skin. And I did makeup for 10 years, and I like to read about makeup that comes out and what, what it does for your skin, because people say it's a myth, but it's not a myth. Oils are very important. When you use oils on your skin, it gives your skin a shimmer, and you don't use a washcloth. You use use the, uh, the pump, and you wa- use your hands, because mm-hmm. sometimes if you use a washcloth, you dry it up your skin. Right. All right, Mom. All right. So you just loaded with new information. You know, you're the best. I'm going to I'm gonna come over and see you in a little bit. i just uh, wor- working right now. All right. I love you, Ma. All thanks right, for, thanks for joining you, the show. I am Anthony Scaramucci, and that was Open Book. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and make sure you hit follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. While you're there, please leave us a rating or review. If you want to connect with me or chat more about the discussions, it's at Scaramucci on Twitter or Instagram. You can also text me at plus one nine one seven nine zero nine two nine nine six. I'd love to hear from you. I'll see you back here next week.